Grab your Bibles, if you have one, open to Luke chapter 2 with me as we read about what John just mentioned about Jesus being offered, uh, really presented in the temple and Mary being purified along with Joseph, her husband. I think we would all agree, right, that newborns are a gift from God. Mothers, upon giving birth, do everything they can to protect the life Every mother deserves protection after giving birth. Every baby deserves protection after giving birth. Sometimes, I think you would all understand, sometimes mothers, after giving birth, when they're all alone, they get scared. And they do wrong things. And they make some bad choices. Just before Christmas in 2005, on a calm Wednesday night, just inside the door of North Austin Lutheran Church on Chicago's west side, custodian Kenny Green mysteriously heard the sounds of what he thought might have been little children. And he found them, and they were seated in a single baby seat. Wrapped in a blanket was not just one, but two newborn babies. There's umbilical cords still attached. The babies, a six-pound, six-ounce boy and a five-pound, girl were later that evening named baby Joseph and baby Mary by the staff at Oak Park's West Suburban Medical Center where they were checked out. They were determined to be in excellent health and the doctors said that they could have been no more than two days old. It's an ancient custom that's gone on for centuries now of scared young mothers doing what they think at the moment is the very best thing they can do given all of life circumstances for their little newborns to drop them off at churches. It comes from an ancient reality that back in the Roman Empire, unwanted children were actually left at the side of the road. And they, were done, they did that because it was well known that Christians would come along and scoop up that little one and take them home and make them their own child and raise them. After this uh, suburban medical center got these two babies. The story went viral, and within a day they had over 40 requests for adoption of those children because it's instinctual for mothers and guys. We learn it maybe as we observe to protect and to care for little ones, for their mothers, is to only do that which is most normal, most right, and to care for them, to have your heart touched to be sympathetic to the pain and the sufferings of what must have gone on for that mother who wisely chose to bear them full term and then maybe not so wisely dropped them off in a bit of danger. But so often these stories end up with such a good ending. All of this leads us to Jesus at 40 days. Join me in verse 21 here where you have Jesus at 8 days old being brought to the temple. Verse 21 of Luke chapter 2. And when eight days had passed before the circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. (coughs) Now, Mary had given birth, and in eight days... Jesus had been circumcised. So here is a Jewish girl raising a Jewish son 
according to all the Jewish laws given to them by God, laws that were for the benefit of both the mother and the baby. God stipulated that there would be a period of rest and recovery for both, a period of time called purification, more actually for the mother than for the newborn. The mother, under law, was declared unclean. You and I have a hard time grabbing a hold of those kind of clean and unclean categories because we don't have them in our culture. Um, The closest we get is either being liked or disliked on Facebook, but then they did away with the dislike, so now you never have to worry about that. It it was more of a status than it was actually anything to do with filth. It was more like you were religiously unclean and therefore unfit to go worship God until that uncleanness was taken care of. And there is obviously a symbolic message behind it all. So the process of her becoming clean began with Jesus being circumcised, the newborn son being circumcised eight days later. And again, you know, here you come to it, we're not even familiar really with circumcision all that much. But we can think of it in terms of water baptism. Circumcision that is performed by human hands is like water baptism performed with human hands. It is the visible claim that someone makes before others, of, before other Christians of saying, I'm in the covenant with you. I'm in the new covenant with you. Back in the ancient days, under the Mosaic administration, the circumcision was that enacted upon the children so that the parents were telling everybody this one is in God's covenant for Israel. And so it was a visible way to send forth the message that this particular individual is in the covenant with God. And so with water baptism as well, when these individuals are baptized today, they are making to you a credible statement that we are all to accept that they are our brothers in Christ, that they have, in fact, been cared for and have come to faith by God, the God of the covenant. They're saying, I'm your brother in Christ. Now, accept me as such. It kind of goes back to the reality, though, that even with circumcision, when it was done with human hands, it didn't do anything to the human heart. And so the, the desire of Scripture and of the Lord was that men and women would come to have their hearts circumcised, an invisible circumcision. Imagine a cutting away of something that was hard on your heart, mainly resistance against God, and a cutting away of that so that now you were open to follow the Word of God from your heart, not merely because it's what you were raised to do or what you were meant to do in order to please other people or to somehow get along well in life, but now there would be an inner motivation. So too, with baptism, prior to water baptism, an individual should come to the place where they are baptized by the Holy Spirit. A sovereign work of God, an invisible work of God, it isn't necessarily felt, but it produces in us human individuals who receive that a work that changes our heart and places God's law within so that we yearn to obey the Lord from within. The nice thing about the New Covenant is that it doesn't merely apply to Jews, it applies to Gentiles as well. And I think both of the men who are going to be baptized here a little later can testify to that reality, that they don't come from a Jewish background. 
But here they are being baptized and telling you that they are followers, head, heart, and soul of Jesus Christ, the great Jewish Messiah. And we land ourselves with both feet in the land of Israel, in the land of Judaism in this text. It's great because it is a wonderful text to not only see Jesus at 40 days old, it's a wonderful text because it also allows us to realize some wonderful truths about God, especially God's law, which so often gets a bad rap that it's awful, it's demeaning, it's patriarchal, it's rude, it stunts people from having a full life. It's all these kind of negative things that are always said about God's law and how bad it is for human flourishing and yada, yada, yada. All of that. Well, this text really gives us a nice little perspective of the reality that whenever God makes a rule, a law for us, it's always out of mercy. It's actually out of real great kindness. And we'll see that as we go through Luke chapter 2. We're going to just really cover a few verses this morning together. Luke is going to describe as he goes through the scenario with Mary and Joseph and Jesus and Simeon. There's four events that will occur through this. I'll have them all begin with the letter P. We're going to go through purification, providence, prophecy, and praise. We'll do two this week and two next week. Now, verse 22 really begins that first step of mercy I was mentioning under our first header of purification, the mercy of purification. And here, really, for the mother herself, after she has given birth, has had blood come out of her, uh, she was required religiously to have a cleansing from her defilement as a result of what had happened. Look at verse 22. And when the days for their purification, according to the laws of Moses, were complete, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So, Luke chapter 12 kind of gives us the background of this scenario. If she had a boy, they had the eighth day circumcision ancient rite. And then also, according to that passage in Leviticus chapter 12, If it's a firstborn son, then special rules applied. She was not only unclean for those first eight days, she was unclean for another 33 days, making for a total of 40 days inclusively. Now, during those 40 days, while she was unclean, if you're beginning to feel sorry for her, like she's somehow the pariah of society having to run around declaring unclean, unclean, the opposite was actually the case. During her time of being unclean, she was not to cook food, because if she cooks food and you eat it, you are then unclean. And she wasn't to clean clothes, because if she cleans your clothes, then you, when you wear them, are unclean, right? And she was to be cared for, she was to be loved on, and all her responsibility was, was to take care of the newborn, even if she felt great. And that's why I say even the law of God, when it's properly understood, is always merciful. And in the case of mothers with newborns, she was required for almost six weeks to focus all of her energies on the care of that newborn child. So really, it wasn't bad, right, ladies? It might even tempt you into wanting more babies in that culture just for the vacation alone. And that was only the beginning. In what must have just been sheer 
fun, at the end of the 40 days, she was given a vacation to the big city. Leviticus 12 stipulated that she had to go to the temple. Her husband was not required to. And if the family had already given birth to daughters, then he might stay back and take care of the daughters if he needed to do that. But Leviticus 12, listen here to the words. When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering, a young pigeon, a turtle dove as a sin offering, to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So the offering then removed her ritual uncleanness, moved her from being unclean to the status of clean, and in effect ended her vacation. The fact that in Leviticus that her husband isn't even mentioned in the making of the sacrifices proves distrue what those TV shows that always come out at Christmas time always claim. That Israel's laws were written by men and they always and only reflect an ancient patriarchal society that was all about the repression of women and how awful it was to have to be a Jewish woman back in that day. Of course, that's just not true at all. In fact, we see all kinds of specific mercies given for children. And you'll never guess what I'm going to tell you next. Guess what? If she had a baby girl, she got almost twice as long a vacation, 66 days, until she could become clean again. And so she had 66 days. That's a better maternity leave than Germany. So here you have the mother in Israel getting these, all these days here with a firstborn son, 40 days really just to recover, to focus, to have enjoyment, to thank God and to worship. And at the end of that 40 days, you get a fully all-paid trip to the big city, Jerusalem, which probably if you live any distance away, and it was all foot travel back then pretty much, hey, you got another week of vacation on top of the 40 days. Of course, by that time, I don't know if you ladies are feeling this or not, but I'm wondering if some of you are like, man, I'd like to get back to my family and start cooking for them, cleaning for them, taking care of them. They're having to suffer with my husband taking care of them. I could understand that as well, certainly. But can you imagine? Sorry, you're ritually unclean. Don't touch those clothes. Don't go out to the market. Don't buy food. You just need to hang out, and you need to let us take care of you. And it would go on for week after week after week after week. So this is your Mosaic-mandated maternity leave program going on. But there's a subtler message here, and it's this. It's the mother, while she probably didn't always need that much time for rest and recovery, she needed to know that in her conscience, down deep, the reason she was created was not to just be someone's husband. And the reason she was created maybe more closer to her heart was just to be someone's mother. She was created herself to worship God, to have a relationship of knowledge of God, of knowledge of his glory, of his grandeur, of his excellence. And this would give her time during which, depending on how many children, and they could certainly, because they started early, they could have a lot of children, give her a lot of time to realize that Everything, the reason why right now I'm not doing anything, the reason I'm not doing anything right now, and the reason why it's taking another week and another week is so I can go to Jerusalem and make a sacrifice so I can worship my God and serve him in my conscience according to the dictates of the law of God. 
Do you think she was thinking, man, this law, this is burdensome, this is so onerous. Oh, I wish I was a Gentile. Are you kidding? This was awesome. So merciful, so good. So that was the first mercy just within our broad topic of purification. The next one is presentation of the firstborn son. Join me in the middle of verse 22. It says, They brought him up to Jerusalem, here's the word, to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And you would go to the temple, and you would pay a ransom payment of five shekels. You literally paid God five shekels for your firstborn son, and that set your firstborn son and your family off so that he could be yours and raised to be yours, and he wouldn't belong to the Lord. You literally paid off God for your son. Why? Well, some of you remember the story of the Exodus And the last plague upon the nation was the destruction, the killing by the angel of the Lord of the firstborn male of every Egyptian family. And God had stipulated, I took the firstborn from every one of them. Therefore, you Israelites, it's a perpetual statute for you. You owe me your firstborn son, but you can buy him back from me for five shekels. And so again, lots of mercy there. Five shekels was not onerous on anybody, but it certainly told them that this is absolutely serious business with the Lord. And it brought into aspects of redemption and things that they could think about and understand why having sacrifices for sins was so central to the way to think about life on this planet. So they had that. And of course, they would also realize then that every child is what? A gift of God. Have you ever been in on a birth? If you've been in on a birth, I've never, ever known anybody to be in on a birth and after the child is born go, wow, evolution is so awesome. <laughs> it's amazing. Five fingers. Five. Everybody's blown away. It's like sacred territory when a child is born. The church that we're going out to in Colorado Springs is, has uh, two obstetricians. They're always delivering babies. They've delivered thousands. They've been at it for decades. That's all they do. And every birth, they say, I ask them, is like that. It's sacred. I mean, a lot of times there's a great dangerous situation nonetheless. With all that pressure, all that intensity that comes at that moment, nonetheless, that's a sacred event, that child being born. There's, there's no evolution going on there. Hand of the Lord is so obvious and true. And because, therefore, every child is a gift of God, that's why we as parents do our best to raise our children to walk by faith and not by sight. That's why we raise them this way. That's why we bring them to church. That's why we teach them Scripture. That's why we confess our sins to them when we sin against them. That's why we... Raise them in the knowledge of the Lord. That's why we want them to understand that Christmas is more than getting gifts, which, of course, they're selfish hearts, just like our selfish hearts when we were their age, cared about far more than these things about spiritual truth that they can't see and grasp and hold yet. But we teach them these things because we love them. So this is referring then to the second mercy, the presentation right that allowed a mother to now come to the temple present her newborn, and commit herself before her God directly to him. 
and offer her child back to the Lord. Lord, my children are from you. You care for them. I will raise them in the fear and the knowledge and the admonition of the Lord. But they're yours. I recognize that they are yours. And then verse 24 refers to a third mercy in purification. And this is the one you're probably the most familiar with. It's called dedication. Join me in 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to what they said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So there you go. Here you go. You make your offering. And this deals with some of the sin issues that are related in the curse. Because obviously when Adam and Eve were cursed after the fall, the reality of painful childbirth only came about at that point wasn't originally to be that way. It was only at that point that it became that way. And so, therefore, even childbirth, as sacred an event as it is, is nonetheless tainted inwardly and invisibly with the reality of sin and a cursed world. And therefore, it was important for parents to realize, in spite of the beauty and glory and joy and everything good about a newborn child, to remember that underneath it all, woven in through it all, is the reality of the curse and sin. I'm going to point out a quick detail here. I just want to point this out. It's important, I think. Um, In verse 22, if you'll notice, it says, When the days for their purification, in the New King James and the King James, it doesn't say their purification. It says her purification. But the Greek underneath is their purification. In fact, what you have here is a subtle reality that of the virgin birth. Let me kind of explain that real quickly for you. I'll try. You see, normally the, it was just the mother who was required to go, right? And then she would make an offering for her own sin. There was no requirement that there refers, by the way, to both Mary and Joseph. But the Scripture is very clear that after the birth of Jesus, according to Matthew one twenty-five. Joseph did not know her until after she delivered the firstborn son in Matthew one twenty-five. Now, if she had always remained a virgin, there would have been no need for there to be their purification, for Joseph to be purified. But what this is subtly saying is that afterward, and after obviously appropriate amount of time, they consummated their marriage. And therefore, Joseph was with his wife when she was in a state of being unclean, and therefore he himself became unclean. For him, though, and for her, it was a choice well made to go ahead and be unclean, because it would just mean that when they went to the temple, they would make sacrifices for both of them. And that's what you have there as a subtle reminder of the virgin birth, and then them over, kind of overtaking that, and then coming together in their marriage. So it's a precious little text right there. Okay, so that's God's first mercy connected to the 40-day-old Messiah, this purification aspect that's very wonderful, it's very intimate, it's, it's special, it's sweet. The second event that we're going to finish with today is providence. providence. Now, before Mary and Joseph can take care of everything in the temple that day, they are interrupted by a prophesying old man. Look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem 
whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. Now, we're missing a word in our New American Standard, the word behold, idu, in the original language. If you have a New King James, if you have a King James, you have that behold in your text this morning. But you don't if you have, like, my version right here, the New American Standard. It's too bad because it really should read this, and behold, this man in Jerusalem, Simeon, was righteous and devout. And the idea is this. Can, it's almost like step back for a second and go, what? Are you kidding? There was a guy in Jerusalem who was righteous and devout? Are you kidding? No, that's a joke, right? Because, allegedly, there weren't any kind of men there in Jerusalem like that who were righteous and devout. But he is. And there are three complete things that are described about Simeon. When it says that he was just, it means that he was upright in all of his dealings with men. And the fact that the word just would be used would tell you that he didn't have some kind of a job where he didn't really have to deal with people. He would have probably had some kind of a significant position in his younger days that would have required him to handle a significant amount of responsibility and make a lot of decisions regarding people's lives. So the fact that he's just here means it's a tested justice. He has been tested over the course of his lifetime and his dealings with men are just. And then... Secondly, he's there called devout. The word is, could be translated Prius. I mean pious. I'm sorry, that's the Toyota. Does anybody drive a pious? Yeah. I saw one come in, a red one. Who's got it? Go ahead, admit it. Um, Toyota, by the way, did that on purpose. I read the book. Um, so, so here he is. He's devout. Now here's a word that doesn't get much truck in our culture, Right? If somebody were to come up and call you pious, would you thank them? Oh, thank you so much. Or would you go, um, okay, or to call you devout? But scripturally, this has the idea of someone whose conscience is tender and close to the scripture, that they inwardly hurt when they meditate upon deliberately disobeying God's word. That there's just a, there's a, a devoutness inside where kind of like God has won their heart and in spite of all the ways that their own heart is telling them if you do this this will feel really good and you'll feel satisfied and fulfilled they've learned that that's their own heart telling them just another lie a devout man or a devout woman is one who has a stronger ear for God's word than for one's heart and that's what is said of Simeon. And he's also said here in this verse that he is looking for the consolation of Israel. Does your version have those words capitalized? Some do, some don't. But it's like a title, the consolation of Israel. I want you to think of the book of Isaiah here. I want you to think of messianic comfort. The idea would be that Isaiah was waiting for the Messiah and the comforts that the Messiah would bring to not only himself and his family, but to the nation of Israel, according to the ancient prophets and all that was written in them. So here is a man 
probably every day making his way to temple. That was his big trip of the day. Older guy. And he'd go through the temple and he was constantly looking for the consolation of Israel. Messianic benefits. Messianic comforts. You see, when you have messianic comforts, then it's bigger than anything else in your life. If you have messianic comforts, you can endure anything. You can endure martyrdom if you have messianic comforts. If, if you possess the messianic comfort, then honestly, it doesn't matter how bad you have it off in this life, how bad the cancer is, what stage it's at, how bad friends and family turn against you, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter what happens to the stock market. It doesn't matter who's elected president. It, it doesn't matter what happens in politics. In, in fact, as all these kind of negative things happen to you as you get older, and maybe they even escalate as you get older, and as you mature in the Lord, and the Lord gives you more trial to handle, messianic comforts then actually become more and more and more important to you. Well, that's what Simeon is saying here. This is, not a, this is not a man who's got a downcast face, who's looking for the next person that he can whack with his stick because they're not obeying the law. This is a guy who's filled with hope, with messianic comfort. And then lastly, at the end of verse 25, he is described this way, that the Holy Spirit was upon him. That would be the endowment for a one-time miracle. It was a type of, it's actually described in the original text this way. It's a little bit different than like where you might be thinking of Ephesians 5.18, be ye filled with the Spirit. This is more a special one-time endowment. Different word in the original language, actually. And the idea was that the Holy Spirit would come down upon a person. He did it in the Old Testament in all kinds of ways. We see it in the New Testament as well in order oftentimes to do what is called prophesying. You know what prophesying is? Because it gets a weird rap in our, lang- in our culture, prophesying. I think it gets connected more to certain kinds of pop culture and weird stuff. But prophesying, scripturally, is simply meaning that God himself sovereignly chooses to speak through a human being, even in their, even in their whatever sinful condition they're in, directly. He's using them. He's using their mouth. He's using their thoughts. He's using their vocal cords. But every last syllable they say is the absolute word God wants them to say. And so that's what's going on here. Simeon, who obviously is a lovely believer and lovely knows the Lord deeply, has probably walked with the Lord for 50 plus years, here is said that the Holy Spirit is upon him and he's going to prophesy. He's going to speak to Mary and Joseph. Now look at verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That little last phrase there, the Lord's Christ. But something's missing in verse 26. There's nothing in these words that at all suggests that Simeon's going to see a baby. In fact, the very phrase at the end, the Lord's Christ, is pulled right out of the end of Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is the great messianic war psalm in which the Messiah comes and trounces all the kings of the earth in, medic- in, in uh, warfare. So 
He would have been thinking, based on that phrase, the Lord's Christ, a scene of end times military conflict. You remember the verse? The kings of the earth, they take their stand against the Lord and against His Messiah. They counsel together against the Lord and against His Christ. So he's expecting, almost certainly, to see a full-grown man in the temple that day of military might, of political skill. And since he is in the temple, Simeon is also expecting this individual to be a powerful religious leader. Now picture a sleeping baby boy, not yet seven weeks old, being carried papoose-like by a teenage girl through the temple. She just made the six-mile trip down the hill from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. And she's almost certainly protective of this little baby that's on her as she's around all kinds of strangers walking in the temple. And this man comes up to her and Joseph, no indication in the text at all that they've ever met each other, that they know each other. And somehow, he's going to come and he's going to prophesy over this child. Surprise to him. Surprise to her. That's why I call this providence. None of it was arranged by people. This is all God's doing. And imagine now, if he had said to them, walked up to them, God told me that I should prophesy over your baby. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph at that? It would have been like, uh, yeah, sorry, pal, no way. You know, your little antennas are going, doo, 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 doo. I'm thinking rather that Simeon approached them and probably said to them something deeply scriptural, something deeply prophetic, something probably comforting to Mary. Somehow, she felt comfortable enough to slide the baby out of the sling. And look at verse 28. Well, verse 27, he came in the spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. Look at this. He took him into his arms. Just stop there. Put this in perspective. Simeon just scooped up the world's Messiah in his arms at 40 days old. This little guy can't even hold his own head up. And he's going to rule the world? He's probably still dozing at the moment after all the jostling. So instead of meeting this powerful world leader in religion, politics, military might. He meets a baby at 40 days old. And this is the one the Holy Spirit within him leads him to prophesy over. That will be our third point, and we'll get to that next week. I just want to make a closing observation out of verse 29, and we'll close with this. Do you see that word, Lord, Simeon says, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant, or literally slave. What's so interesting about the word Lord there, is it's not the normal word for Lord. It's the word we get our English word despot from. We don't have despots in our culture because we don't really have that allowed politically. But you know what a despot is. It's a it's a ruler, it's a ruler of some kind who rules autocratically and has no personal relationship with those who serve underneath him. And, and a despotase back in that day was someone who was typically over a vast area of territory and he had many, many servants and slaves. But think of this now, the aged Simeon holding the baby in his arms, 
And the first thing he says is, now Lord, nunc dimittis in the, in the Latin. That's where that phrase comes from, that great musical piece as well. But when he says Lord, he places God, God Almighty, God the Sovereign, God the Creator, as far from him almost as possible while yet not denying the relationship. It would be like a believer calling God, Oh, distant and almighty, and leaving it there. As if there was no real personal connection. That's what this is. And then he follows it up by saying this, You're releasing your bondservant. What's he saying? I can go. Thank you. Oh, almighty, sovereign God, who ought to have nothing whatsoever to do with a worm such as I, now you're letting me go. Now I could die. And he calls himself here a doulos, a slave. What a wonderful way for us to close off this text this morning, to consider ourselves not on equal par with God, and we're kind of like jostling with him for what we want out of life, but rather to be more like Simeon, to be exactly like Simeon, and be just devout, and have a fear of the Lord like he had. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for a brief, quick look at Luke chapter 2. So fun to watch these people's lives and to see how they respond and react and to consider the baby Jesus at 40 days old, the world's Messiah, yet in infant form. And we're grateful that you brought us here this morning so that we could evaluate our own hearts and lives and how we relate to you. Father, thank you for all the good things that you give us. We bless your holy name now through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.